BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the official Pelicans podcast of HoopBall.com. We're providing in-flight insight for all Pella fans out there. I'm your host, Nick Garisco, and I'm here with Pelicans expert Michael Pelache, who has returned from a two-week trip to Spain. Michael, we miss you, buddy. How was your trip? It was good, man. It was, uh, it was funny. My, my sleep schedule was all out of whack because of the, the time change, so I was actually waking up at like... 3 a.m., which is conveniently when the Pelicans were playing most nights was like 1 or 2 or whatever. So I was catching scores and all that stuff, but I didn't get a chance to watch until I came back. But it was good, man. Oh, that's great. That's great that you were able to catch some of the Pelicans. What, what were you doing there in Spain? Yeah, so I was hiking the Camino with my sister. We uh, we walked one of the smaller routes. A lot of people will walk for, for months to get to the Camino de Santiago. and uh, But we walked about, about fifth. wait, hold on. I think it was like 75 miles over about five days, about 50 miles a day. And uh, wow. it was fun. Yeah, it's crazy that like it was like 40 degrees and rainy every day, which I love that kind of dreary yeah. weather. But I mean, uh, it was that many miles. <laughs> it, 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 it wouldn't be that bad, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's like it was like the hard part about it was like even with waterproof stuff, it was still leaking through our clothes and stuff like All that. Right. So like, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't well, ideal, but it was fun anyway. Gotcha. Well, that sounds like an awesome trip, and I'm glad you were able to cover some of the Pelicans games. I'm gonna I'm gonna recap some of last week's games so the audience knows. Uh, ever since Michael left, we were able to beat the Los Angeles Clippers without Kawhi in the last week, or Pat Beverly did not play in that game as well. It was 132-127. Drew finally had his breakout offensive performance that we've all been waiting for. He was incredible that game. Derek Favors, 20 points, 20 boards in that game. Then we had a stinker against the Miami Heat on Saturday. and But we followed that up with beating the struggling Warriors on Sunday, thanks to J.J. Redick kind of getting hot there. And the injury report was really, for that game, was really a sight to see. Uh, the injury report for against Golden State, the Pelicans were without Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, Zion Williamson, Derek Favors, Brandon Ingram, Frank Jackson, J.J. Redick, uh, Jaleel Okafor, and Darius Miller. All missed that game, and we still got the win because the Warriors themselves, I guess, have been bitten by the injury bug. And then on Tuesday, we bested the Portland Trailblazers, and that was also a well-timed game because Damian Lillard was out for that one. And 
Most recently, last night, the Pelicans defeated the Phoenix Suns at their place thanks to Brandon Ingram just really showing out in the fourth quarter. Michael, what were your takeaways of that game? Uh, I mean, I, they're playing better for sure. It, it didn't. It certainly helped that Rubio was sitting. We've had a lot of injury luck against other teams recently, despite pretty horrible injury luck on our own end. So I guess it all right. balances out. But um, I would say that they just kind of they seem like they're finding a little bit better of a rhythm. Uh, so Lonzo came back last night and came off the bench. I'd actually like to continue to see him come off the bench based on how the starters are playing. I, I think it's the right kind of timing to where you want to evaluate. You know, Reddick's playing out of his mind right now. Like Reddick had a, a crazy night last night. I mean, he was a big part of why we won against Phoenix because he was just hitting every shot that he took. Um, but, no, I mean, they're just playing better. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is really playing easier teams on the schedule. I, I think that has a large part to do with it. And in the same way that I wasn't freaking out when we were 0-4 or whatever, I don't think it's time to anoint us this great team yet because I think it's just sort of, you know, this is what the schedule does. You, you play a lot of really good teams back-to-back-to-back to back to back and you look worse, and then you play some subpar teams and you look better. Like, I think it's, I think it's all par for the course. So Lonzo Ball was supposed to be on a minutes restriction. I wanted to ask you what you thought about him coming off the bench and whether you think that's actually going to stick. I know it's easy for a coach to think that it should stick uh, coming off a win, of course, and had we lost, I think he might, or played poorly, I think he might be, probably wouldn't even be considering it. But even if Alonzo Ball is healthy, why do you think that, uh, you already suggested this, but why do you think that it might help the team if he's coming off the bench? What kind of skill set or uh, chemistry uh, issues do, do you think that affects? Um, I mean, I would say that one of the main things is that I think if Lonzo is coming off the bench for Lonzo, I think Lonzo is forced to be more aggressive than he would be on the starting unit. I think that's what he really needs. Uh, uh, Schmidt has like basically tweets us out like every day about how many drives that each Pelicans player has in, in whatever game. And Lonzo is just not, he's just not touching the paint. I mean, we talked about this for the season. Like I don't, I don't think of Lonzo as a traditional point guard. I really haven't ever felt like that, but I, I do think like that doesn't mean that it's not a problem that he's not driving. And I think if you're going to put him in a position to be anywhere near a point guard, which at times he's been, like it sort of holds up the offense when your your main guy isn't getting in the paint. Now Drew, on the other hand, now that Drew is playing so much better, Drew's getting into the paint at will, and and that's sort of creating what we need for the offense to run. And I, I think that's Lonzo the best being way. More aggressive. Uh, when he's coming off the bench? Uh, you know, I'd have to go back and see some of the games where I think he had played on the bench before earlier this season. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that yet, but I think in theory, I think it's really easy, you know, like as a human being, like if you know that you're on a team with a bunch of guys who can score or you're on a unit because like the, it's, it's comprised of units, right? So if you're on a five-man unit where Ingram and, and Drew are there, it's a lot easier to defer. I think right. because you you know that they're going to carry the heavy burden on offense. I think if you're on the second unit, it's entirely different if there's not a lot of scoring talent. And our scoring talent just isn't as great on the second unit despite having people like Frank Jackson who who can put up points in the minutes that he plays and um I think it's just a different level of responsibility and I think that that's a good way to sort of get a guy going and maybe maybe you get him going and maybe, you know, once he sort of settles in, maybe it is better to move him back to the first unit, but I think for now the right move is to be the second unit. Do you think that Alvin Gentry is going to continue that trend, or do you think it was maybe a one-game experiment simply based on the fact that he was kind of coming off an injury? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, 
I think if they continue playing well, it's going to be hard to justify shaking things up. Right. Uh, things will obviously be shaken up whenever Zion comes back, but I, I think the first unit's got something solid going. I, I would expect that they'll probably give it another game or so at least right. before they, they start moving Lonzo back. But I don't know. I really like your your guess is as good as mine on that one. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, and Lonzo Ball's kind of a, I shouldn't call him passive, but he's kind of a distributor. That's kind of his skill set as it is, right? Like that's kind of one of his strengths right there. So you could easily make the argument that if he's with the second unit, he would need to be more of kind of a playmaker there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think... What Lonzo does naturally that's very good is I think Lonzo is very good at tracking multiple things at one time visually, but to be a great initiator of an offense, you have to be willing to score yourself in the paint. I, I think it's just it's just necessary, and I don't think he's there yet. I don't think that he's – I think he's got the quickness and the handle to get there. I don't love his touch around the rim, and I think he has some things to clean up, but I think the makings are there for him to do it one day, maybe not at an elite level, but at least at a, a solid level – but that's not today. He's not nearly there right now, and I think it, it just— I think his free throws need to get there because I think that subconsciously he doesn't want to get to the line because he's not sure if he's going to convert those buckets or those free passes, what are supposed to be free passes at the line. And I think if he becomes a better free throw shooter, uh, he might be more inclined to drive because the worst-case scenario, it seems, or one of the worst-case scenarios is that maybe he gets fouled. Right now, it doesn't seem like he wants to get fouled. And when you have a really good player who's really good at driving to the basket, they kind of invite the contact. You know, like they kind of, and even initiate it, not just not just accept it, but even initiate it oftentimes. And it doesn't seem like Lonzo's on that level yet. And I think part of it might be because he, you know, can't convert both of those shots at the free throw line. I think the free throw line matters. I, I'd say that the, the bigger point that I would make is that I don't think he likes a lot of contacts. Like you had just said, I, I don't think he's someone who, besides the fact that he's maybe nervous shooting free throws, like I don't think he enjoys creating contact near the rim and he really right. doesn't despite having it's weird it's always weird for me when someone's a really good passer which requires really good touch and then they don't know how to score on the move like I, it's just he, when he shoots when he's like actually attacking the rim and he's not just having a layup like he, his his touch is just off and i don't know how easily that's fixed but that that would be a problem regardless of how often he's attacking if he's getting there and he's not able to convert then that's that's going to be an issue. And that's, I mean, again, that's, this is the biggest thing with Lonzo right now is can Lonzo learn how to drive and attack the paint? If he does, you're talking about a great player. If he doesn't, you can still be talking about a very good player, but not one that you want initiating your offense. I think. Yeah. I don't mean to, for this to be the Lonzo bashing session on my end. Of course, I know he's a young player. I know he's a good player. He has obvious, he's kind of one of those players where it's kind of obvious what he needs to work on, which unlike a lot of other players his age where uh, they have, you know, several things that they're okay at and, you know, like, oh, maybe he can improve this. And then some nights they show out and some nights they don't. Lonzo has a very defined kind of skill set, I would say, where it's like, okay, we know he needs to become a better free throw shooter. We know he needs to have more contact. One of the interesting 
uh, I mean, we knew we needed to drive the ball more. One of the more interesting things you said is that he doesn't really like contact. And that would seem to make sense based on his injury history. And again, I don't mean to bash Lonzo here, but if a player is continually getting hurt and kind of having these nagging minor injuries, it kind of makes sense that he wouldn't want to be initiating contact or wouldn't want to be getting into the paint often. I, th- I think to some extent, but I would say even if you go back to his days at UCLA, like I think Lonzo is just someone who really likes, I, I think of it almost like he likes playing chess. And I think like if you look at it that way, the way that he sees the game and the way that he, both on offense and defense, I think he loves space and I think he likes exploiting space. And I, I don't know if that's a bad, that's probably a terrible chess analogy, but like I think he just likes operating in space. I think that's that's Lonzo, Lonzo's preference and and. I think that goes to why he doesn't like contact. Like, he doesn't want to be in the mix necessarily. I think he wants to to be in space and to find people moving, and I think he likes tracking all that kind of stuff mentally. I think where you were trying to go with the chess analogy, the spatial part maybe didn't make a lot of sense, but I think what you meant, the (laughs) mental part of it, though. I think Lonzo, that's the part I kind of like the chess analogy for. Lonzo wants to use his brain to win. Like, he wants to... That's the kind of player he is, is he wants to use his basketball IQ and his smarts on the court to, you know, patiently beat somebody like a, a person in chess or a player in chess would. Uh, you know, the spatial part obviously didn't make any sense, but it didn't I make get any what you're sense. Saying. No, you, yeah. you, you cleaned it up a lot. I appreciate it. No, no, I get what you're saying because he does want to. That's his way of winning. Right. I mean, that's that's his that's his advantage that he has on the court over other players. And, of course, he's going to want to use that. His advantage is not, obviously, driving the basket. It's not, you know, getting to the line and shooting free throws. Uh, Arguably, it's not shooting in general, I should say. But making plays and facilitating and making smart plays and doing a lot of the things that really strong IQ basketball players do, I mean, that's that's where Lonzo will beat you. So that's what he's looking for there. Yeah, I agree. I I think that's that's what he like you said. I think that's his his edge, and I think each player, hopefully, if they're any good, has some sort of edge, and they exploit that edge. And that's for Lonzo. That's what it is. Michael, I want to talk about the game last night in terms of significance, right? I, in my opinion, beating the Suns last night was a lot more significant and important than it sounds on the surface. Uh, I mean, I realize that this is an 82-game season, so I hate to put a lot of importance or emphasis on one particular game, but I'd argue that this was the Pelicans' biggest win of the year or most important win of the year uh, because, you know, considering all of the facts here that the Suns were sitting in the spot that we coveted, which is the eighth seed of the Western Conference, um, they and now, despite a brutal start, and despite the rough schedule, and despite you know our laundry list of injuries, the Pelicans now, after that game, are only one game back of the eighth seed, which seems crazy to me after this start. Had we dropped that game, we'd be three games back. So, so it's really, I I just think it's a really important win for the Pelicans. I think it is. Uh, if I look at the standings, the teams that really stand out to me for competing for the eight seed are really Sacramento and possibly one of the Spurs, the Blazers, if they wind up getting, you know, turning their season around. I think Oklahoma City's direction is pretty clear at this point. Golden State is flat out tanking as they should because they just don't have the health to justify going for anything right now. 
Uh, Memphis has a top six protection on its pick, so they're going to want to keep that pick. I would anticipate that throughout the year they'll probably wind up dropping some games because they're going with the youth movement. So really, I, I mean, it's crazy that like after that kind of start that the Pelicans are still in the midst of this. But it, to me, it's between the Pelicans, the Kings, and the uh, and, and one of the Spurs or the Blazers. I, th- I think those are the teams that will be duking it out for that final spot. Right, and the Suns have it right now, but you're you're right. not expecting that to hold up, I guess. I you know, and maybe I'm maybe I'm being too dismissive. Like I I certainly didn't see the Suns coming out to the start. Uh, one thing that I really like, and this is an explanation that Jason Colmes had years ago. He was comparing Gentry and Monty. I think we've even mentioned on a prior podcast, but he said what Monty does is Monty has he likes a lot of control with his team. And what that does is for younger teams that gives them the structure and simplification that they need to do well. And that with teams that are very good, kind of like we talked about the last podcast we have with the warriors, when you have elite players who are great decision makers, you want to give them the freedom to make decisions on the fly. And so what happens is like with someone like Monty and a young team, like I think that's helping them a lot. But at the same time, like something just doesn't sit right with me for for them competing with a for a playoff spot. You know, maybe I'm being too dismissive because I didn't think they'd be good at all. But uh, it, it really feels like the Kings. The Kings have been much better. Um, Rashawn Holmes is playing really well, and I know that inserting him in the starting lineup has helped them a, gr- a good bit. Uh, they just feel like a bigger threat to me. I don't know what it is, and I, I could be completely off because I, I didn't think they. What were about this the good Minnesota Timberwolves? You haven't mentioned them. I'm curious if you think that they will be contenders for that eighth or seventh seed. Um, I think they'll be. I think they'll stay in seventh or eighth. I mean, I think if we're competing with Minnesota, like, I don't know. I, I, Minnesota feels better to me. I, Wiggins has had a much better year than he has previously. He's one of those guys that always put up some really good point totals, but never really was a great overall player. Um, from what I understand, I haven't seen them a lot this year. I, I think he's playing a lot better. People who I I trust are saying that he's turned it around. Cat is fantastic. Cat's actually like averaging like four threes a game. Uh, which has been awesome for my fantasy team. And, yeah, way uh, above <laughs> his career average. Too. It's not he's even close. A, yeah, he's having a great – it's kind of like Brandon Ingram, actually. Honestly. Yeah, it, it's yeah. A, Brandon Ingram's threes out of nowhere all of a sudden. I think he – I mentioned on the fantasy basketball podcast I did in your absence that he – I think he averaged like 1.7 threes a game. I, I forgot the exact numbers. And now he's chucking out 5.4 attempts from deep per game, which is just this crazy, crazy turnaround. It's like he learned how to shoot the three during the off season, uh, and he is still a young player. So I'm not saying that he can't. I say it sarcastically, but I'm not saying that he can't develop a skill. Of course, but it seems so odd that all of a sudden, you know, now he's shooting all of these threes, and and, con- and not only just shooting them, right, converting them at a ridiculous rate. Yeah, and uh, so a guy that I, I really I enjoyed his book, Thinking Basketball, his name is uh, Ben Taylor. He had a video recently about Ingram's shot and how he's just shooting so many more threes and he's actually converting them at a very good percentage. You know, Ingram is not going to shoot necessarily as well as he has from three the entire year. but Right, you're going to get a, it's regression a huge, there. Yeah, for sure, but like it's been, a, it's been a huge improvement. And I think, you know, with regression, we often talk about it, and I think defining it is, is a good thing to do regression is there's a true mean out there right like there's some sort of true average that we expect every player to shoot at right now but that that average changes over time as their mechanics change as their experience changes and everything like that so i think what's happening is that you know even though he's shooting really well like we're regressing yeah he'll regress back but instead of regressing back to 32 percent or whatever he might be regressing back 
to 39%, right? Which is maybe his right. true three point shooting percentage moving forward. And that's, that's fantastic. And I think like when I look at Ingram, I see someone who is extremely young and is already able to score at all three levels. And if he continues to shoot like this from three, like he's going to be a monster in future years. He really will be. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Let, let's let's continue on with that playoff picture real quick because I really liked where we were going with that. I kind of see the – I'm confident after 15 games that four teams are going to make the playoffs in the Western Conference, barring any type of unforeseen crazy amount of injuries to these teams. I'm confident that the Nuggets are going to make it. I'm confident that the Lakers – are going to make it. I'm confident that the Clippers are going to make it and the Houston Rockets in no particular order. But those are the four teams that I'm very confident in saying that they will make the playoffs in the Western Conference. Uh, There's two teams that I'm comfortable with saying that they will make it, but not totally confident. But the comfortable teams uh, that I'm with are the Utah Jazz. And I'm going to go ahead and throw the Dallas Mavericks in there because I just think that you know, Luca's obviously playing on a ridiculous level. He's one of my favorite players in the NBA. Um, I think Przingis kind of gives them that extra star power needed. Uh, they have they have a decent amount of depth too, and so I, I like Dallas to make the playoffs. But that kind of leaves two. If you take my word as gospel, which you never should, of course, but let's say let's say what I'm saying is right. Um, that kind of leaves two open spots for all of these teams that you've mentioned, the Kings. And maybe the Timberwolves, the Pelicans, of course, and uh, you know possibly the Suns uh, to kind of duke it out for oh, and the Spurs, of course, to kind of duke it out for the last two spots. I guess I just named five teams. Oh yeah, got to throw the Blazers in there too. So uh, it's five or six teams really kind of competing for two spots. And again, the Pelicans are actually only one game out of that current eighth seed right now, which. I have to say, I mean, that's pretty good position considering the kind of tragic start that we've had to the season. Yeah, and I think the hard part is going to be the next stretch of games. I think this is where, in the same way that people are getting really excited about how how many wins we've gotten recently, right. here's our here's our next few games, right? So we, we even talked about, we had a Bosch podcast yesterday where the audio quality wasn't great, but we were even saying on this road trip, I wanted one win. Um, it would have been nice to get two, but we have Phoenix, which we wind up winning. But now we have the Jazz on the road. We have the Clippers on the road. Then the Lakers at home. OKC back-to-back, which is, yeah, we're probably a better team than OKC at this point. Um, and then we have Dallas, Phoenix, Dallas. I mean, it's not it's not terrible, but the next, th- no, I think the next like three games terrible, are going to be... Yeah, Michael, it's certainly a brutal schedule. It seems like every game in the Western Conference is against a team that could theoretically beat you. There, there's very, very minimal cupcake games, I guess I should say, here. But I still am very impressed with where the Pelicans stand right now, considering the circumstances. I'm going to go over an injury list right now, and you know, you just sit back and relax because it, it, it takes a long time here. Uh, Jaleel Okafor has missed five games with lower back spasms. Frank Jackson and J.J. Redick have missed a game apiece. Brandon Ingram has missed four games with right knee soreness. Drew Holiday has missed two games with a knee issue. Derek Favors has missed six games with a back ailment. Uh, Josh Hart has missed five games with a right knee and right ankle problems. Lonzo Ball has missed six games with a right adductor injury. 
Zion Williamson has also obviously missed all 15 games with a sprained MCL. And despite all this, despite that laundry list of injuries here, the Pelicans are now 6-9, and nine, which doesn't sound good. But again, they're, they started 1-7. and seven. So the fact of the matter is that New Orleans is 5-2 and two in their last seven games, which is great. And this is despite all of the injuries that I just stated, all the missed time. And we're actually riding a three-game win streak, which is encouraging. Yeah, and I think, too, like, I, I don't know. I just think they're in a good position. I mean, if they if they can survive until Zion gets back, which is supposed to be mid-December, I think they'll be in a good place. I mean, whether they, they wind up capitalizing and making the playoffs is another story, but I don't. I would be surprised at this point if, given some sort of reasonable, like, proximity of health, I, I mean, like, that. I don't know if that's going to happen because – that's not happening right now, but if that happens at some point, or if we don't get worse, uh, I would be surprised if we weren't at least in the rut in the the race for the AC. Yeah, we talked about regression, and regressions is going back to the mean of things. And if you were to take the NBA average of, uh, I guess, health, if you will, from the average NBA team, we're actually do positive regression in the health department. I mean, we have to. I mean, we have to be one of the most injured teams, if not the most injured team in the entire NBA thus far through 15, 14 games of the NBA season. So we're due for positive health regression. Players are only going to get healthier, it seems. And, uh, you know, the law average would dictate that. And I think that that's also good news. And like we've mentioned a couple of times, the schedule, although it doesn't look very assuring right now, I think by the time Zion comes back, it does clear up a little bit. It's not as rough as it is now. So these games are really important to just kind of stay. You know, I'm not expecting the Pelicans to actually, you know, be above 500 by the time Zion Williamson comes back. I think that's unrealistic in this conference and with our schedule and with all of our injuries. But if we can just kind of stay a few games below 500, we'll be right in the hunt with all of these other teams uh, compete, really competing for what I think will be two spots uh, in the Western Conference. So, I like where we're sitting right now, and I like the run that we're on right now. And But that all said, I think that these games are very important to kind of uh, to kind of dictate exactly how the Pelicans are going to play their season when Zion Williamson comes back. Because if we're out of contention and we're like 10 games below 500, we could start seeing the Pelicans lean towards more player development. I agree. Yeah, and speaking of player development, I wanted to get your opinion on Jackson Hayes. I mean, he's seeing a lot more playing time lately. And, uh, of course, this is all because our front court has been decimated with injuries. Derek Favors has been out. Jaleel Okafor has also been out. Uh, But he got the first start of his career against Golden State uh, last Saturday. Ten points, ten boards, three blocks. And he followed that up with a 9.7 rebound game against Portland. He also had two steals and two blocks in that game. And in the last four games, he's actually averaged 23 minutes a game, and he's blocked nine shots in that span. Uh, I'm liking what I'm seeing from a, a rim protector, especially from a future standpoint. Uh, what are you seeing out of Jackson Hayes? So for me, I'm a lot more confident in his offense at this point than I am his defense. And that's not to say that he won't become a great defender, but I think it's usually harder for younger players to become reasonably good defenders early on. So it just there's less evidence of it right now than than what I see on offense, which is I already think he's a top five to ten rim runner in this NBA in the NBA. Like I think he's that good. I 
He's really, really fast. Um, he's extremely, he's actually very agile for his size. He's got really good dexterity around the rim. He jumps out of the gym and he's long. Like I, that's just a really good combination. And I don't know if I've mentioned it yet, but he's just got a, a fantastic motor. Like he's just someone who, you know, things might change if you're playing 35 minutes a night or whatever. But I, I think he's someone who gets up and down the floor as a big guy, as well as, you know, most, almost anybody in the NBA. I, I really, I really like what I've seen so far and, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, I, he's just a freak athlete, man. Like the, some of the things that he's doing on offense where you can tell that it, in a very unique way, besides Zion, who is, who has not played yet, there's not anybody else on the Pelicans team that at least at this moment who commands anything near the attention that he does running to the rim in a pick and roll. And you're seeing what's happening with it is that like, even if the guy who's, who's handling the ball, like, let's just say Drew Holiday misses his shot. Jackson Hayes is getting matched up for the offensive rebound against some smaller guy. And he's just cleaning up miss after miss, even if he's not receiving the lob. So like, it's just putting pressure on the rim in a way that really we, we haven't had this season so far from a big guy, but we cannot under or cannot understate his, I shouldn't say flaw, but I, I should say struggles with kind of foul trouble. We saw it last night in the Phoenix game there. It caused him to play um, fewer minutes than he normally does. I think I would. I think it's fair to say that he struggled last night. What are some of the things that he can do to avoid fouling? And do you think that this is a that some? Do you think this is something that just comes with the territory from a young shot blocker? Or do you think that this might be a, an everlasting problem for a player like him? Um, I think part of it is it's not worrisome to me. I would say that, like you, like we talked about, I think the recognition of, of how to defend the NBA is just it's just really hard to develop, and I think it's going to take time. And I don't think he, I think he even, you know, hasn't played basketball for an extraordinarily long period of time. So I think he's still picking up on the nuances of the game. I would say from the game last night, I noticed a few fouls that probably shouldn't have been called on him that certainly didn't help matters. He was very upset when those fouls happened because he knew he'd be taken out. Right. But I'd say like one of the things he does is like if you're a big guy, you have to know not to bring your arms down. You stay vertical. Um, you live with the results. Like if you're just trying to contest the shot most of the time, unless you know you see a real opportunity for a block. And I would say that that's the kind of stuff where it's small things like that. That happens one or two times a game. All of a sudden, instead of having maybe two fouls like you should, if you're more experienced, you might have four and you're getting taken out of the game. It's it's small stuff. I think what I see from him as a shot blocker is really interesting. I think as a, as a sort of secondary shot blocker, I think he does extremely well. I think he's just so athletic and he, he times things well enough to, to block people on a secondary basis. Or if a guy's like, you know, in transition or something like that, I think he's doing just fine with it. But what I do see is sometimes when he defends one-on-one, if he gets caught behind the guy that he's guarding, a big man, sometimes he struggles to get back over the top and block the shot. None of this is to say that he's going to be a bad shot blocker. I mean, he's blocking a good bit of, so let's see, 2.2 blocks per 36 minutes. So the blocks are there. He just got to clean up on some of the, the individual things. And I think eventually he'll wind up being a, a very good shot blocker, probably not elite, but very good. Yeah, a lot of these young shot blockers tend to have been coming into the league with foul issues. I'm thinking of like the Wendell Carter Juniors and Mitchell Robinson for the Knicks, and uh, Jaron Jackson has had a huge problem with it. 
And it's just it's just interesting that that's such a big problem. It seems like one of the only things that is holding these types of players back with these massive upside is that they can't stay on the court because they just keep getting pulled for foul. So it's definitely important for Jackson Hayes to learn about that. And he's going to get a great test of not fouling because uh, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but he gets to see Rudy Gobert in his next matchup here against the Utah Jazz. And that's, of course, if that's, of course, assuming that uh, Derek Favors is going to miss this game. And if he is out, that's such a shame because, you know, Derek Favors probably wanted his uh, hashtag revenge narrative there, his revenge game on the Utah Jazz there, but it looks like Jackson Hayes is going to get the start, and he's going to have quite the competition with Gobert. How do you how do you foresee that matchup going? Well, I mean, I would say that what I worry about with the Gobert matchup is not so much Gobert individually, but more him as a rim runner. Like I, I think it's going to put like because they have so many guys who can handle the ball in that roster. I think when Gobert is in pick and roll situations, Jackson Hayes is going to have to make a lot of decisions whether or not to you know, be a little bit tighter to the ball handler or stay attached to Gobert on the pick and roll actions. We certainly have no one else who has the length to contest a Gobert lob. I mean, maybe you could say Ingram, but I would say like, that's what I'm curious about. And then, you know, I think one of the biggest things for Hayes, and, and this is really more important to me than his rim protection at this moment is how he defends in space. I've actually been very pleased with how well he moves side to side. I think that's going to wind up being a real strength for him. Um, and then just knowing where to be in team defense situations where, you know, his positioning is going to affect how he can impact the play. And, and sometimes he shouldn't be near the play. Like sometimes he should be somewhere else. His, his defensive rebounding has not been particularly great. Um, that's something where I, that's not a problem yet. But usually rebound rate doesn't change substantially unless you shift the responsibilities of the player. Um but yeah, I'm, I'm getting way off topic here, but I would say that I'm more curious about how he's going to make decisions against two people, one of which is Rudy Gobert, than I am with Rudy Gobert posting him up or anything like that. Yeah, it's interesting to see because I, I think that, you know, it's certainly something to keep an eye on because I think going in, we didn't expect Jackson Hayes to be playing this much this early in his career, and we kind of wanted this year to not necessarily be a red shirt year, I should say, but a year that we wanted to see him uh, take time to learn the nuances that we've discussed already, but also to, to kind of get in that NBA locker room and develop some strength and uh, you know get a little thicker. And I think that you know Gobert is going to be a good test from that perspective as well. Uh, I, I would just hate to see Gobert just kind of bullying him around from a strength perspective. But hey, if Jackson Hayes holds his own against Gobert, then you know he's got the upside to do it against anybody. Really, um, let's let's shift gears here. We we've talked about Jackson Hayes, young player here. Let's go to our our, our wily veteran here, uh, Drew Holiday. Right? I mean, he's had an unbelievable week. He is playing uh, like David Griffin wanted him to, to be playing when he called him a quote-unquote MVP candidate. And he kind of had his first explosion of the season, at least offensively, uh, last Thursday, 36 points, four rebounds, seven assists against the Clippers. He also had six steals and five threes in that game. And at that time, we were missing Brandon Ingram. So it was going to be. I was kind of curious if if he was going to follow that up with Ingram with another great offensive performance, and he did. 
uh, against the Blazers on Tuesday. He had 22 points and 10 assists and also a triple there. And then he followed that up with yesterday against the Suns, 10 from, uh, 10 from 19 from the field, 23 points, 9 assists. He also is getting his three steals. His steal rate is crazy right now. Uh, but let's talk about his offensive game here because he was in a massive shooting slump to start the season. And this is ever since really Coach Gentry kind of and Drew kind of talked about his offensive game. And they had a little sit down. And I'm interested to see what you think has changed here other than the fact that he was kind of due for positive shooting regression because, you know, he's just such a good basketball player. So the the best theory that I've heard, and I really like this, was uh, so Michael McNamara was saying that, you know, we, we all know that Drew's handles have been sloppy at times in, in, the, in the past, and I would say that that's been one of the biggest things that he cleaned up probably about two or three years ago. He figured out uh, his handle was a, became a lot better, and he also started driving left a whole lot. Um, and so what McNamara was saying, and I, I think there's probably some truth to this, is that if you look at Drew's offseason workouts, a lot of it's focused on things besides, like, being able to like handle the ball like a lot of its conditioning and strength and you can see it because drew's a tank um and i think also the acclimation to to playing with other players he hasn't played with before sort of got him in his own head but his handle was really loose to start this year and so that theory that you know he wasn't working on it as much and that it just basically took him a few games to get back into the swing of things i think seems to be a pretty good one and i think that's a big part of it because really what drew relies upon like he had a couple last night where he he crossed over like two or three times within the same drive um, to get to his left and finish. And I would say that that's really, you know, what he needs because Drew usually doesn't just explode um, laterally and like just get to the rim right away. Like he's not really, he gets downhill, but like it's really more like a sequential, like move, 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 done. And then it is just like a, a one quick blur. And I think that's a big part of why he's becoming more successful is his handle is good enough to do that now. Um, and it's been better. It's just been a lot better. And he was he was awesome against Booker all night. Booker, you could see, was being a lot more aggressive when Drew wasn't on him. There were a couple times in the game where, where Drew wasn't defending him and Booker was being a lot more aggressive. He got his hands on, like, everything. Like, so, I'd, I mean, Drew's just phenomenal at getting deflections and steals, and yeah, he's just a great player. He leads yeah, the he's NBA great. in deflections, which not necessarily steals, but deflections. And the next highest player is actually Andre Drummond with eight fewer deflections, which is pretty crazy. So he's he's leading that category by far. And he's also, third, he had three steals last night, puts him at third in steals for the NBA. And this is... Well, he's missed games, too. Yeah, I yeah. was just about to say. He's missed two yeah. games. And I know that doesn't sound crazy in the course of a season, but there's only been 14, 15 games so far. So, yeah. I mean, that's a seventh of the season, yet he's still... You know, the next highest in deflections, like seven or eight behind him, and he's third in steals. So we know Drew is a menace defensively. He also has high block numbers for his uh, position, of course. Yeah. So it's just great to see Drew putting it all together. We know the type of player that Drew Holiday can be when he has his offensive game going because we already know he's one of the best defenders in the NBA. Yeah, and that's going to be a big – I mean, I think one of the easiest things to point to, we had so many individual things going on that there's a lot to be lost in it. Um, but one of the reasons we just weren't as good – I mean, just Drew, Drew just wasn't playing as well, and Drew was clearly our best player. So point. it's like – yeah, I mean, we needed him, and, and he's playing better. Obviously, there's schedule help and stuff like that, but even with a lot of injuries, we're playing a lot better, and a lot of that is tied – 
the Drew upping to what he used to play. No, yeah, it seems so obvious in hindsight that now Drew's playing well and the Pelicans are winning all of a sudden. But at the time, it actually wasn't very clear because at the time when we were losing, there was all of these other problems going on. Everyone established that, yes, Drew wasn't shooting well. But the Pelicans had so many other issues like injuries and rotation issues and all kinds of stuff. There were all other reasons that we were losing. But, I mean, you made a great point, and that's worth mentioning here, that when your best player isn't playing well, it is hard to win. I mean, and Drew is also not just our best player. He is he's one of the few veterans on the team, and he's been with Gentry for years. He's been with the Pelicans for years. He's... He's, for lack of better words, he's kind of our quarterback. And when your quarterback is not playing well, it's difficult to win. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point by you that it seems obvious in hindsight, but I, I think it was overlooked. Everyone kind of understood Drew wasn't playing well, but it's like they weren't pinning the Pelicans' main reasons for their losses, like their 1-7 and seven start. They weren't pinning the main reason on being Drew. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, let's move. Let's do one more player spotlight here. I mean, I actually, I, I, I do want to give major props to JJ Redick last night because he was phenomenal. And I also want to get. It looks like he's kind of coming on too as well. And he and Drew are developing chemistry together. And I and before we give the last player player spotlight, I want to give one more quick prop to Brandon Ingram, who I thought really won the game for the Pelicans in the fourth quarter last night. Ingram, look, we've talked about Ingram kind of ad nauseum here. He's been sensational this season. He's been awesome. I mean, he is fulfilled. He's exceeded. Uh, he's exceeded all of the wildest expectations any Pelican could have, honestly. Uh, but we can talk about Brandon Ingram any day, although I did see a great stat on him. I think it was he's one of the only he, – he's one of two players in the NBA – uh, averaging over 25 points a game while also shooting over 48% from the field. So we talked about his efficiency earlier in this podcast. The other, and I hate when people give those stats without saying the other person just because you always end up getting curious. The other is Paul George, but the only problem with that is he's only played, what, two or three games so far? So Ingram's, that number is way more impressive from Ingram's standpoint because the sample size is a lot larger. So I wanted to give shout-outs to Ingram and, and J.J. Redick real quick before we move to the next spotlight. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, Ingram, to me, would have stood out. I mean, it was nice that you're saying at the end of last game, Ingram had a really tough start to the game. Yeah, he did. And I think what's really nice is, like, Ingram doesn't lose his confidence in himself. And I think what I love about him is that his aggression is very often going towards the rim as his first option. And he's not unwilling to shoot other ways. Like he, he certainly has a mid range game and he's certainly willing to shoot from outside. But I think what's nice about it is he, he pushes the issue to the rim first. And I think that's extremely important in players. And I love it. I, I've just, he's just been great. And I didn't, you know, Griffin actually tweeted something today about how like he didn't expect Ingram to be this good to start the year. And I love it because like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, we all saw this, you know, well well ahead of time. And, and, and some of them might have. I, I think that's obviously a possibility. But I think, like, people looking back on it, some people are switching their opinions. I, I didn't know what to think of Ingram. I, I was very unsure of what he would become. And I've been just so pleasantly surprised to start the season of, of how well he's played. No, I mean, we saw a glimpse of this when 
LeBron James was out and the Lakers were kind of phoning it in at the end of the season. We saw a glimpse of this in the last, yeah. I should say, quarter of the season. But it was honestly, it was only, I don't think anyone expected it because that was only a glimpse, right? Brandon Ingram was not taking threes even when he was playing well down the stretch for the Lakers. And that was, I think everyone can agree that that was the best we've seen out of Ingram in his young career was that final stretch, that final, I should say, 20 games with the Lakers last year when LeBron was out. And that was his best that we've seen. But he still wasn't shooting nearly as efficient as he is now. And he wasn't shooting the three ball. Like, I, I think, again, he was averaging just a little more than uh, one three attempt a game. Or I should say around two three attempts a game. Uh, I don't think he was averaging even one th- three-point make a game. So it's just really, I don't think anyone, even if you thought Ingram was going to be good, I don't think anyone could have really foreseen this amount of production. And it's not just box score production. I mean, Ingram looks like a straight-up baller out there. He's passing the eye test. I mean, he looks like the real deal, and he's still so young. And I'm glad we were able to get a player like him in the trade as opposed to looking back on all this summer now, as opposed to someone like Jason Tatum, who isn't bad, but it seems like the Pelicans kind of traded with the right partners. I think so. I mean, I, I haven't watched enough of Tatum this year to really watch his development. I mean, I think it's because players can get better later. Like, I am i don't want to over-conclude, but I, I do agree that, like, we certainly lucked out in the fact— well, not lucked out, but I would say that the way that Ingram is playing right now with all the different assets that we got alongside him right. and that trade, like, it certainly makes me happy that—I mean, I think we walked out of that with just— I mean, we because the Kays and, and Nikhil were also part of that trade, essentially. Yeah, so, and like, future draft picks. Like, don't we have draft th- picks. swaps with the Lakers for, like— Every other year like, for the next, like, 2025 or something. Until I'm, like, until I'm 90 crazy. years old. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 ridiculous. So, yeah, we got, we got a lot of capital. It's looking like that trade kind of – even the crazy part is that we got all of that when, you know, we had some leverage, but everyone knew Anthony Davis wasn't going to come back here. So you lose a lot of leverage from the fact that he's definitely going to get traded. But, you know, kind of limits the teams that want him, I guess. But anyway, let, let, let's get back to now here. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just pretty happy with that deal so far. And, that, and that's a franchise-changing deal with the Pelicans um, this summer. But let's do one more player spotlight. Let's do one more player spotlight because i got to give this guy credit here. And that's Kenrich Williams here because he is getting starter minutes now. He is... He's averaged, I mean, he's played over 30 minutes in each of the last six contests. And he has not scored double-digit points in any of them. And that's why kind of I want to give him a spotlight on this podcast today. Because he's not, you know, one of these highly regarded players on the Pelicans. But he's really getting the job done from pretty much every other perspective. He has double-digit rebounds in four of those six games. He had nine last night. Uh, he's all over the glass. He contributes a few assists. He's had eight steals in the last six games. He's had five blocks in that span and seven triples. Uh, again, he's not a big name because he's not a big scorer, but he fills up the box score in other ways and all those peripheral stats that I think uh, in defensive numbers that I think kind of uh, lend credence to his uh, his nickname, Kenny Hustle. Yeah, and what I like about Kemrich, I mean, there's so much, uh, I think, like you're saying, where we often focus on the players who who score all the points and do the things that are a little bit more glamorous. 
and Kemrich is sort of doing everything besides scoring points. I mean, if you look at his right. his scoring rate, honestly, it's probably one of the lowest in the league. But that's not what we need. Like that again, we've talked about the offense and the starting unit. And as he's been with the starting unit, he's doing all the other things because they already have scoring taken care of. And I, I think, you know, one of the it's funny. Like at the same time, I'm really excited because I think he is getting some shine from people. And then I also think like some people are like blowing him up as if he's irreplaceable. And and maybe he is on this team. But I'd say that a lot of good teams have guys like this. So it's like you recognize it for what it is. And, and he's extremely well respected by his teammates. He's someone who's filling every gap that we need in the start. Well, not every, but yeah. most of the gaps that we have in our starting unit. And he does it all like in a way where, I mean, he's working hard the entire time. He's not complaining about the fact that he's not getting shots. There's real value there. And I, it, it just seems like he's a great guy. And it's cool to see him being, to be so, so successful with the starting unit and, well, to be to be frank, it'll probably be short lived once on gets back. But you sure. know, he's someone that I have a lot of confidence in in terms of filling gaps in the future. And you know, I, I think we had even mentioned it. I think you were the one that talked about it last last podcast before the audio messed up. But uh, you were saying how we were sort of deciding between Christian Wood and Kenrich, wasn't that you? Yeah, that that was me. I mean, three players that kind of excelled last year for the Pelicans late down the stretch when the season was pretty much over after the Anthony Davis debacle was Kenrich. And uh, I think Alfred Payton was putting up great numbers, at least. And then Christian Wood. And it kind of seems like the Pelicans had to make the call to keep one of them because it was kind of unrealistic to keep both. And Wood's now with Detroit, of course. But I'm glad we were able to keep uh, Williams because, I mean, he's I mean, look, he's not the best NBA starter. Ideally, he probably shouldn't be starting. But hey. I mean, look at the facts here. I mean, I'm not saying it's a direct correlation, but look at the facts here. The Pelicans have won. They're 5-2 they're and two in their last seven contests, and this is despite all of these injuries. And Kenrich Williams has started the last six contests. I mean, th- those were the games he started. So seven? No, you, you got it. You, so you said seven. It was exactly seven. Oh, so he it's, started last seven. Yeah, no, you're yeah. right. So like this, as you said, five and two is, yeah. is exactly so what it's been. I, I can't. I, you know, obviously, you're not going to say the reason the Pelicans are five and two is solely because of Kendrick, but there has to be some correlation there, right? And I, mean, and, I think he's a reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry, sorry. There is a correlation. There has to be a causation there because I think that he's playing a. Even though it's not showing up as a score, he's playing a big role and getting huge minutes, and he's really helping the Pelicans do all the things that you know every t- NBA team needs. I like how you said filling the gaps. I think that's a great, um, I think that's a great phrase there to kind of describe exactly what he's doing. I, I kind of liken him as a, uh, he, uh, you know, you say when somebody's solid at everything but great at nothing type of player, and you know he's somebody that you know. You can. He does all the dirty work. I say he goes up there to pick up the slack. Yeah, I agree. And I there were a few plays specifically last night where I was watching for it. And like I, you know, simple stuff. Like I think he had a block on Devin Booker. But it's also stuff where like I, I remember we talked about how Drew was awesome against Devin Booker. But there's one play where Devin Booker I think had Drew sealed really close to the basket. And there's an entry pass where the guy recognized that Devin Booker probably had an easy bucket. And uh, or as easy as it's going to be against Drew and Kenrich read it, got in the way and and actually think tipped it or stole it. Um, Little stuff like that where like it's little recognition moments where he's doing things, whether it's offensive rebounds or, you know, positioning himself on defense. And it's just good. I mean, he's a he's a glue guy. He, He 
he glues yeah. things together and he's been for what he's asked to do he's he's been doing it very well and i'm happy for him yeah definitely i mean he's definitely risen up to the occasion here uh we definitely ideally didn't want kenrich williams playing 30 minutes every night going into the season but gentry seems to love him as a starter and i'm glad that it's worked out because it just kind of solidifies the depth for the Pelicans, even when we get some of those players back, uh, like Josh Hart and, and Zion, some of those forwards back from injuries. Uh, looking at the upcoming schedule this week before we depart, the Pelicans have started their West Coast trip that we've already talked about. It's a three-game West Coast trip. I shouldn't say it's all West Coast, but it's it's a West trip, a West road trip, I should say. We started with the Phoenix Suns and with a win there, which is great, so it's already looking good. But again, we have two tough opponents. We have the Utah Jazz uh, on Saturday at Utah, and then we have to go play the Los Angeles Clippers on Sunday as part of a back-to-back to close out the week. And I think after that, we have to play, we do come back home, but we have to play the Lakers. So that is a... That is a that is four really good rough. teams, yeah, four really good teams that we have to play here. So uh, pretty brutal there. So hopefully we can get one of those games uh, and stay in contention here. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I, I'm looking at the next five, and I, I see it as like so: it's Utah, Clippers, Lakers, Thunder, Thunder. I would like to two would be I think a really solid win. I think one I'd be okay with, and then you know anything zero would be bad. You know, and three would be great. So, yeah, and if those Oklahoma City Thunder games, they could end up being the most important if they're actually going to yes. compete. We haven't really mentioned them a lot in the Western Conference because just conventional wisdom says that if they're not where they, you know, if they're not pulling a 2019 Clippers like where they, uh, where they kind of a lot of people didn't expect them to make the playoffs and then they just kind of did. Uh, if they're not pulling that kind of thing. I think you could see Chris Paul being traded. Gallinari could even be a trade piece. Steven Adams is an obvious trade candidate there. Uh, they could kind of blow it up. So, uh, but until that happens, you know they're going to compete. I mean, Chris Paul's competitor. A lot of these play, a lot of these players are really good. Oklahoma City has talent to actually compete as the eighth seed in the West. So it's important for the Pelicans to uh, to knock them down a notch. Hopefully, we can win. But what is it? A back to back, or is it just two? Sh- yeah. It's- yeah. No, yeah. you got it. It's back to back. Back to back. I mean, if the Pelicans go two and zero on that, that would really kind of knock—I uh, wouldn't say knock them out, but that would really kind of be a, a nice punch to the gut for the uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder there, uh, which is important. I mean, they're one of the teams that we're competing with, so it is important. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I think that has to wrap up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the official Pelicans podcast for HoopBall.com, providing in-flight insight for all the sharpest Pella fans. Hey, as a reminder, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast and give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast is. You can also follow Mike Pelache on Twitter at Mike underscore Pelicans. I am at Fantasy Law Guy. And check out HoopBall.com for all NBA and fantasy basketball needs. See you next week. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.